Welcome back. I want to take a quick second to tell you about our sponsor of today's episode of North American Deer Talk, CNE Wildlife Products. CNE Wildlife is a trusted leader in biotechnology for the cervid industry. They offer microencapsulated bacteria products that are research supported through Texas Tech University. With more than 30 years of experience and commitment to all natural probiotics, this product line continues to be a mainstay in herd management programs across North America. And the reason is simple. They are passionate about the cervid industry. They have products for elk, whitetail, muleys, red deer, and more. With products ranging from Fawn Paste and Electromax to Guardian Plus, Whitetail Energy Pack, Jumpstart, or their ever-popular Top Score Extreme, they just flat out work. We've been a CNE Wildlife product user for more than 15 years. To learn more about CNE Wildlife, check out episode 54 of North American Deer Talk, a probiotics masterclass with CNE owner Sadie Horrocks, and give her a call today to start using the products we do here. Hey, it's the Deer Wizard, host of North American Deer Talk. I want to tell you about a great new advertising and research platform that we've developed for you, CWDbreeding.com. You know, as the deer industry continues to mature and develop around chronic waste and disease and its known genetic heritability, resources like CWDbreeding.com become essential tools for deer managers across the country making decisions about their herds. I really wanted a platform that excelled at hosting GBV and codon markers in a filterable and searchable manner, but I also wanted to have high quality pictures, videos, ages, scores, NADAR numbers, and a whole host of other information to go along with that. This database puts everything in one easy to find location and allows you to access the industry's greatest genetic resources. I look forward to seeing all the great bucks that people have to offer in one easy-to-find location, cwdbreeding.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of North American Deer Talk. We have a little bit of a different show for you today. If you are a Servit Solutions member, you've probably heard from Amy Sark. She works with me, with me here in the um, Servit Solutions office. And she reaches out during open ordering and, um, you know, gets, gets um, any questions answered, gets orders placed, things like that. Um, she's also been a part of the deer farm that I manage for five years now. And I asked her to put together um, some questions. So listener questions, questions of her own um, that she thought would be interesting for all of you to take a listen to. So in the conversation that you're about to see, Amy comes on, she's got 10 questions. These are blind questions. I haven't heard them before, and we have a little chat about it. I hope you enjoy, and we'll see you soon. Amy, welcome in the studio. Glad to be here. What do you got for me? Um, so yeah, I was thinking about my these questions here, and you know, you go all different ways, but uh, I thought one of the most basic questions, and the first question I want to kind of talk about was, you know, You've been in the deer industry how long? Over 20 years now? 24. 24. Yep. So just looking back like and thinking about your experience, what is one of the main things you know now that you probably would do differently when you first started? Um, I wish there was, oh, I'm going to uh, plug our company quick. I wish <laughs> there was a company like Servit Solutions that could um, 
have educational resources kind of sure. all in one place mm-hmm. um, for me to learn from. If you look at where the industry is today from like a professional standpoint compared to where the industry was in the 90s, um, they're not comparable, right? So like we, I think we've learned a lot from other animal industries sure. and we've adopted a lot of their techniques, animal husbandry practices. And, you know, back in the day, it was just like, well, this guy said this, this guy said this. And there's still that today. That still exists. It's, it might even be worse because of social media mm-hmm. where you have the ability of like a hundred people to interact as opposed to like the farmer down the street that you learn everything from. Um, I did. And I, I, I was fortunate to what I think have a good mentor who was my uncle. He kind of got me in the game right. and um, that's, that's helped me a bunch, but like, I have 20, I have 20 years of mistakes. Like that's all I did was make mistakes. I still make mistakes. Right. So we just, right. we try to minimize those mistakes the best we can. It's always a good teacher, right? It's, <laughs> the, be- it's the best teacher. The problem is, is it's an expensive one. Yeah, that's true. That's true. All right. Well, I was also thinking about the genetics, you know, and mm-hmm. this kind of, I mean, it, li- it leads into that question a little bit in the sense that you mentioned we've learned from other industries, right? So um, we've learned, um, you know, we know that the cattle industry and all, a lot of the farm animal industries have breeding values and all sorts of different um, metrics that they use to measure and evaluate um, what animals they're going to, you know, breed with and mm-hmm. all of, you know, reach their goals and those types of things. So. Um, I was just wondering, how are you currently forming your breeding goals and what are your top priorities right now? Um, it's a mixed, it's a mixed bag of priorities. So prior to the release of GEBV for chronic racing disease, I was ultra focused on a pretty specific set of goals. Um, I'm unable to continue to pursue that currently. Um, and I guess I'll expand on that. So I had, I had for a long time, uh, participated in the breeder market, right. Or, or the auction market. And at the end of the day, when you do some self-reflection, if you're trying to build a business model, um, for the overwhelming majority of people, that's probably not the best place to build your business model from. Um, and focusing on what the overwhelming majority of our animals are raised for, which is the hunting market, is is a much better way to go. Um, so while I still breed, um, quote unquote, breeder quality deer, or auction quality deer, they're, they're just different today. Um, so I try to keep my hand out of the candy jar, so to speak, with the kind of latest and greatest um, option. And what I did is I just went through like all of my years of, of time breeding deer. I found um, a few deer that I wanted to breed with. And then I identified a doe line that um, I thought would match well with them. And literally there was uh, four or five male deer that kind of made the criteria for me to to use um, we've now turned we've turned that program into almost two separate programs so that the program that I just described or or my thought processes on that are 
um, they're they're more geared towards uh, embryos and semen collections for um, other people to use or for me to preserve genetics uh, for the long term for a day where I may be able to use them again. Generally speaking, those animals don't have what the industry would consider great GBVs. So I have a risk profile that I'm willing to take on with those animals by keeping them at my property. Mm -hmm. um, but then that brings me into the other part of the herd. So we run small numbers here. Okay. This year we'll have uh, 14 does having fawns. So it's not, we don't have a ton of animals running around. The goal in the future is to put ourselves in that position where we, we can. Um, but today that I'm not, I'm not willing to take on that risk. Um, and I'm not in a position with, with um, land capacity to make right. that happen. So that other side is geared 100% towards uh, GBVs, uh, chronic wasting disease susceptible breeding. And so we're moving as rapidly as we can to turn animals over, improve genetics. And just in um, one generation, we've seen pretty good um, improvements in GBVs and codons. Um, that those animals were part of that other, you know, embryo uh, slash uh, semen collection program. However, um, I have I have since brought in animals into that which don't don't meet that criteria. Mm -hmm. They're still really good deer. Um, we think they'll they'll do well. I would consider them. Um, they're more non-typical than we, we usually breed with. I suspect that'll continue until we have a much larger population of typical animals or typical framed animals. Um, I just prefer, you know, something like this. Like right. I prefer a more, a more clean style deer. Um, but we are, we are in an area, um, we're in a disease management area, which is, it's not an endemic area, but like there is known CWD. Um, you know, within 15 or 20 miles of this facility here where we're sitting. And it's important for me to position myself with the genetics that if something does happen um, from a quarantine standpoint, that I can show our Department of Agriculture that I have animals or I have a group of animals that um, have a pretty good durability to the disease. And then I can transition away um, from the other herd, reduce that risk and then grow from, from there if I need to. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of how I've, I've, I've looked at it. Um, you know, it's, the GBVs is something that once you see them, you, you, you can't take it back, right? right. Like, and I'm not, I'm, not, um, I'm not near as smart as the people who have developed those tests. So I just, I, I lean on their expertise. Um, I can, you know, I can read their papers and, and try to, um, make the most informed decisions, but like from everything that that I've seen, like it's a pretty it's a pretty no brainer on beating this disease. And so, like uh, you know, we've we've been quarantined here for multiple years. It's not fun. Um, yeah. That was just recently, right? Like mm -hmm. um, past four four years ago now, I guess twenty yeah twenty nineteen yeah twenty seventeen to twenty nineteen. Right. So I think that I think that when you look at those all those things collectively. Um, the GBV is a, a net positive for us, and we'll continue to kind of pursue that and its its genetics moving forward. Right. 
So your goal is definitely at some point to have those nice typical animals with the lowest susceptibility to CWD then. It is. I, I, I think, I mean, it, it took, uh, of course, like, so this is, this is um, a Roman shed here on the table. And like, I didn't plan to make this deer, right? Like this is an accident. This is a bunch of luck. Um, however, we've used his mom as kind of a cornerstone um, to a part of our program. And, you know, like almost everything that comes out of them is not, I mean, it doesn't meet all of our goals, but like it's certainly on track to do that. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure that, I'm not sure that I will be able to continue to use him specifically, but some sort of variation of him would be uh, great for us to to do, yeah. Right. Um, so just even in talking about CWD, um, for the deer industry, like sometimes um, there's some negative publicity with that, with the captive deer industry. And I'm just wondering what you think is the best way to combat that um, and just shed positive light on the industry. Mm. Yeah, I guess it depends on the form it comes in. Um, there's certainly been no shortage of articles relating to some sort of blame uh, upon the, the private deer industry. I do think that, I think that overall these continue to be less. However, when you look at like when you look at the regulatory side of things, that hasn't changed much. I guess that's a separate topic, but the the negative press, I think, is letting up a little bit. And and I think why that is is when you look at wildlife and how they how they manage the disease or the tools that they have to manage the disease, it's very limited. But on the farm side, we continue to get new tools all the time. We have um, the control mechanisms in place to be able to, excuse me, to utilize those tools. And I mean, a great example is what we just talked about, like GBVs. Right. Um, I do think that that has a place in in wildlife as part of a program. I think it's a it's a different type of strategy, but I think it's there. Um, if I'm sitting in, well, let me say this first: the wildlife and conservation agencies have a a huge problem with chronic wasting disease and what they've built it up to be, right? They're driving hunters out of the woods, so hunter recruitment is down, and hunters are the main source of funding to keep conservation models alive. So it's a double-edged sword. You can't beat the drum and say zombie deer disease, pointing the finger at deer farms, right. scaring hunters out of the woods, because you need those hunters as tools to implement your program, right? So that that's, that's part of it. Um, and again, if you're sitting, so they have a they have a they have a big challenge. Like, I personally would not want to manage, you know, like here in Pennsylvania, 1.2 million deer. Right. No, yeah. no thanks. I'll, I'll pass on that. At the same time, if I was them, I would be working in tandem with deer farms to try to advance the most rapid and novel technology that we have for CWD, and using them and their ability, especially within the private sector, to manage this disease or come up with answers. Right. So GBV and deer farms implementing that technology and ultimately not testing positive is a net plus for, 
for all deer. The use of live testing as a means to uh, reduce quarantines, potentially remove positive animals, and that in combination with um, selective breeding, that's that's like a, a, a double layer effect, right. right? So like, I I think that when you tell that story and you talk about how deer farms are are looking at genetics to change her dynamics, which ultimately could provide genetic material for um, outside of our fences, that's a hard story to kind of point yeah. fingers at, right? So Keith Warren just came out with a, a new video um, called The Ox Ranch Story, and it's a story about CWD, and, you know, it, sh it sheds light on, um, you know, um, a public-private partnership via a herd plan but it also shows that like there are tools available to deer farmers to um, to implement within that CWD space and and show that you know farms are not really the cause of this and and that you know they can quote unquote clean up herds and things like that. They were pretty aggressive in what they did, which is which is fine. But um, it's it's um, again it's wildlife has a they got a big they got a big problem. They're gonna have to. They're gonna have to deal with this. The more negative press they, they, you know, purport to put on uh, deer farmers and ranchers, I think the more it backfires on them. That's my right. personal opinion. So sure. if I was them, I would come up with a new strategy and do it real quick. Right. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned live testing. That's yep. not um, accepted in every state at this point, is it? So the the texas does more live testing than any other state right they have over two hundred thousand live tests now mm -hmm. um the the issue with and so the live test is available it can be used it is being used it's very accurate the problem is is usda saying that it's approved and when they say that that means the results from the pennsylvania lab and their ability to perform those tests are the same as the Indiana lab and are the same as the Iowa lab and the same as the Oklahoma lab. Okay. So the live test is done via RT-Quick, um, which is a, not a, necessarily a new technology, but um, it, it has to have a, a media, and that media has to be able to be replicated in each one of the state facilities nationwide. All the labs in the state in the right. nation have to be able to do the same test. Okay. So then it gets the, if it works, which we know it does, then it gets the approved status, right? Um, that's just gonna take time. So my understanding like here in Pennsylvania is um, like the testing is ready to go. Um, so like we're kind of ready for that application process with USDA to say, hey, we have the testing in place, validate it, and as other states kind of jump on with that, um, that'll be available. So that's good. good. Yeah, that's yeah. really good. Um, you mentioned land, kind of like your layout and the amount of land you have right now, mm. right now currently, um, and the amount of animals you're putting on that. So I'm just kind of wondering, um, when you designed your pens and everything, um, you know, what how did you design that? How did you design the shoot? And you know, what are what are recommendations you'd have to like new deer farmers when they're trying to figure out how to design their uh, property? Yeah, so I've thought about this a bunch lately because 
um, hopefully in the next, uh, call it four or five years, I plan on building a new farm, mm -hmm. a, a much, much bigger farm. So number one, it depends on the property that you have, like the type of property. Is it all wooded? Mm -hmm. What's the topography like? Is there rolling hills? Where's water? Where's low spots? So like everything's like a, a you know, kind of a, it depends answer. Right. Generally speaking, and, and so the cost of fencing has pretty much doubled in the past three years, which doesn't make it economical um, short term to build any fence. Long term, I think it's I think it's viable, but it also it shines a light on the having bigger bigger pens. I think because you know if you fence if you fence one acre, let's say that's 150 feet by. Uh, 300 feet that is um, just shy of an acre that's like 0.8 acres right mm -hmm. if you if you want to do two acres you don't double the linear feet you're only adding like 30 percent more fence so mm -hmm. the more I think about it um, you know what's the what's the total number of animals that I want to be able to hold at one time? How many pens do I want to have that are fallow at any given time? And you just look at the normal rotation of a of a farm, right? So um, I want winter rested pens for my fawns uh, to be born in, if at all possible. And again, this is some people are like that's a huge waste of space. Maybe, yeah. maybe, but if you run a if you run a calculation on your on your herd health. Um, I think it works out in the end. So how many does do I ultimately need to have to produce the number of bucks that I need to have to produce the proper amount of income that I want to have, right? Okay. Yeah. So bottom line there. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah. that might be 50 does. Mm -hmm. Well, how do I house 50 does? Um, how do I breed them? Is it artificial? Is there an embryo program? Is it all natural covering? How do I handle them? How many extra pens do I need to handle those 50 does fawning, right? So back to the two acre pens, you know, I don't want more than 10 does in there. So, um, um, you know, on average, let's just say there's five adult does per acre fawning in a given space. Um, so ideally, I'd like to have one acre pens and just have a whole pile of them and have five does in because it's easier to manage smaller numbers of animals right. um, just generally. Mm -hmm. That doesn't with today's fence prices, I don't think that makes sense. Yeah. So I want I want two acre pens so I can run 10 does. So I need, bare minimum, I need five of those for, for uh, fawning. Again, that's bare minimum. And then I need probably another five for, you know, breeding, winter, um, things like that. Then you need, I think it's worthwhile having quarantine pens if you bring new animals in holding pens, quarantine pens, uh, sick pens, pens for, um, you know, ranch bucks before they go out or, or sick animals. Um, then you have to think about your buck pens. Then you got to think about your fawn weaning pens, right? So like all those things come into play. Um, there's no, there's no right or wrong answer. Like if you were to step out of this building, all you would see is mountains and trees. Right. So finding like 50 acres of flat ground is not easy no. like I have to go somewhere else right. um, the question then becomes is what's affordable so if you go two hours to the east of here it's twenty thousand dollars an acre no one's buying no not no one <laughs> I'm not buying farm ground for 
$20,000 an acre. Yeah. Bill Gates can do that. <laughs> I can't do that. Yeah. Um, so I am, I am looking for a very specific piece of property and um, it'll take me, I can dream about this, that, and the other thing, but until I see that piece of property and even kind of give it the potential, I can't, I can't lay it out. Um, right. And you can see that here. There's not one, there's not one pen out there that is normal shaped. Yeah. It's all built around the lay of the ground, right? Yeah. And they're all different sizes. There's some relatively, probably space-wise, there's mm -hmm. some relative sizes, um, but they're all different. Yeah. So. Oh, that's a good point. I mean, so you almost have to, if you're a new deer farmer, you know, start with how many animals, what are your goals, and then think about all those other things, topography and everything else um, when you implement your design. Would you recommend talking to other deer farmers and going to see other facilities? Yeah, I, I, I think you have to, you have to make sure that you overbuild, right? You, you can't ever have enough space. Everybody I know has too many deer, mostly, right? Right. So just have more ground, have more pens, or have less deer, you pick. Right. But like, you have, to, you have to establish the goal of what your income, what you want it to be. I want to make X amount of dollars. How do you do that? Well, I can do it through these many animals or these business practice. And then you got to you got to reverse build. You can't just be like, oh, I'm going to have 50 acres of pens and it is what it is, right? right. Just you got to reverse engineer. So we touched about upon this a little bit, but like, you know, obviously at different times of the year you're moving animals. So how do you decide where you're moving animals and when when do you do that? Um so uh, fawns get weaned, fawns generally get weaned in the fall. Um, I think you have to plan, you have to look at if you have, like what's your breeding program look like to wean fawns? I think that's an important part. So I weaned, I weaned fawns um, uh, at 90 days for a long time. And I found that generally speaking, my does were over conditioned and I still had good, I had good fawn growth because I was pulling doe fawns to bottle feed. So the buck fawns were getting all of mom's milk. They just, they were pretty robust and healthy. Um, so like I didn't, I don't think I lost in that respect, but at the same time I wanted, I wanted to ease up on the bottle feeding and um, make mom carry her weight. I was giving her all this, you know, $600 a ton food, like earn your keep out there, lady, right? <laughs> so um, I, I don't do much bottle feeding anymore. So it does, it does, I think it, that will mess with growth rates a little bit. Um, so weaning has basically, I find my breeding date. If I'm doing AI on a specific doe, I'll track back my seeder time. I'll look at vaccinations if I need to change anything within the vaccination program because that's a big part of our reproductive and health programs. And I'll find some place end of September, beginning of October um, to start think about the pre-weaning process. So that's fawns. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the does are pretty easy to shuffle around. Um, we, we, we are conscious of the social structures of some of the does, like some does do not get along. And sometimes you have to move them after you put them in together. Yeah. And so you might have, you know, blue one and, and blue 10 and they hate each other. They just, you can see it. It's a war zone out there, especially mm -hmm. before fawns. So like, 
you just have to make sure that like those does don't go together um you know when we're when we're when we're moving when we're moving uh our our bread does into their fawning pens that's this time of year so uh second week of april third week of april um depending on when breeding was fourth week of april so we'll give vaccines and then they'll get distributed out into those pens um minimum th it, it, it should be right around 30 days prior to when you think they're most of the fawns are going to come of course you don't know right you don't know if they took or not um i kind of i went out i looked in the in the breeding pen and i looked at all the does i kind of gave my assessment of who i thought maybe stuck to ai or was ready to have fawns i, I actually grouped them together this year mm -hmm. so we'll see how good i am at picking because i've had does like bag up you know halfway and then sit there for a month and a half and not right. have fawns and i'm like okay never mind but i want all the fawns to come in one pen at the same, same time. time that'd yeah. be great it makes life kind of easier mm -hmm. for management sure anyway <laughs> um so you're pretty involved in your state association. You're currently the president of PDFA. Yes. Um, do you think it's important for all deer farmers uh, and elk farmers, you know, to be involved, and why is it important? I think some level of involvement is good. Um, I understand that not everyone um, does this full time, right? Mm -hmm. So like, I'm a full time deer guy, right? Like every every. Um, piece of income that I can provide for my family is generated from some aspect of the deer industry right. um, outside of PDFA because that is a volunteer free position um, <laughs> which I've been doing for a long time but um, I think that those who um, can't directly get involved and help in the, the process of the association um, can contribute financially and that helps with a couple things that helps keep um, staff in place mm -hmm. which you know, kind of keeps the lights on, takes care of bills and stuff. Um, but we find, at least in our state, that's a good piece of the communication arm, um, yeah. which is, is important to kind of keep members informed. Um, there's also a PAC fund lobbying regulatory stuff that um, does require money. Um, so I think that financial contribution part is important. Um, if you can give time, that's great, right? Because, mm -hmm. like, you know, you it's it's a lot of work, you know, trying to even just put on small educational events. Um, you know, we're all we're all volunteers within these associations. Like, you know, na nationwide, there's I mean, there's literally just a, a handful of people that are paid positions. It's all volunteer, right? So, um, yeah moral moral support for those people right like hey like you're doing a great job like that goes a long way um you know when you're when you're getting into kind of the nitty-gritty where you need people to know about a, a certain topic or something or you'd like to um, spread the word on you know some new piece of regulation it's nice to have extra people to pick up the phone and like call a buddy like that goes a long way for the association yeah. so i think there's a lot of a lot of aspects um, to look at. You know, there's also, uh, we did this a lot more early on, was there was a lot of education on like how to raise deer. Um, you know, there's, there's the, it, there was like a health program 
you know, where we'd invite some vets in and they'd talk about it. And like, yeah. those things have kind of gone away, um, as at least in our state, as our association has constricted, um, mostly around chronic wasting disease regulation, which is unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's, I, I, um, I think there's a lot of value in, in, you know, being a part of that community. Whether you like what the people are doing or not is is kind of a separate thing. Like if you're an outsider and you're like, I think the association is doing a bad job. Well, you can either start your own association mm-hmm. or you can get in the mix and voice your opinion and, and try to make change, right? right? So I think those are some, some good options for people. And, you know, we're a, we're a member. I don't think there are... There's no deer associations, I don't think, or very few that we're not members of. We try to we try to be at least supportive through a membership and of all and the other associations. Correct. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's kind of my my two cents on on deer associations. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned them constricting, um, but you know, I know there there are still people you know starting new deer farms. So hopefully, they will continue to grow over time. Um, you know, especially as we continue to work on you know the CWD susceptibility and all of that. I am big time positive on the future of, of yeah. deer farming, um, not so much in the short term, right. um, but long term. Um, I am uber bullish. Okay, that's good. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, what is the hardest thing you've had to deal with on the farm, you'd say? Your hardest thing or worst experience? Mm. Well, I think there's two, there's two bad experiences that came to mind. One was more acute, one was more chronic. Um, and I don't remember the year. I want to say it was, I don't know, 2009, 10, 11, something like that. We ended up um, we ended up losing 17 out of 23 Dauphins, right. uh, bottle feds, to a, a bad batch of, of uh, milk. And that sucked. Like, yeah, and that's that, terrible. Yeah, <laughs> and this, I mean, this is when, like, we were buying super high-dollar semen, and we had all these fancy pedigree does, and that, I mean, the market was still really juiced up dollar-wise. How did you figure out that it was the milk then? I tested it. Okay. But I never thought of testing it till like, all the damage was done. Yeah. So it was three, it was three weeks, and 17 of them were dead. Where did so, you get it tested? Do you remember? Um, I think we sent it to Holmes Laboratory. Oh, okay. Um, you know, they do like forage and feed analysis, right. water testing. Right. And I want to say we sent it there. Either that or I sent it to Penn State. I don't, I don't, I don't honestly remember. Okay. But, um, the, it was like the coliform units or something like that. Um, anyway, somebody's listening saying, I know what it is. I know what it is. Um, I forget the exact thing, but it was like through the roof. They're like, like, don't drink that. Some kind of bacteria. Right? So anyway, it was it was a, we figured it was a poor pasteurization process. Right. Um, anyway, that that kicked our tail. Um, so that was not fun, um, but that experience um, taught me a ton about diagnostics, yeah. uh, which I did not know before that. Um, at least not to the, the extent that that had forced me into that place. So I got 
uh, real cozy with the folks at the Penn State lab mm -hmm. um, because there was like perpetual problems with some of those animals, um, at least for the kind of first bit of their lives. The ones that lived. Not. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there was that. And at the same time, we were in deer collection mode. So like we were, so from 2007 to 2009, 2010, I bet you we bought 100 animals from, I can't tell you how many farms, a lot of farms. And we brought everybody's problems in. So it was like this endless cluster of problems. That's all it was. They just treat sick animals all the time. Anyway, so like the, that taught me a ton about diagnostics. That started this whole like Servit Solutions journey into like creating health programs and having some sort of like knowledge base to work from. So that was a that was one. The other one was uh, uh, in 2017 when we got quarantined. Yeah. Um, it just I, I can't tell you how frustrating it was because like everything the whole chronic wasting disease landscape on a deer farmer's st standpoint changes so fast and rapidly mm -hmm. and like number one we were over we were still overpopulated um, pretty significantly then I was pushing numbers I was trying to you know it just wasn't I wasn't fully practicing what I what I preach right and when somebody tells you that you can't sell animals and you got like a, you got multiple pens full of mature bucks that yeah. you know like we got quarantined August 7th right like you're like okay cool uh, 45 more days and these guys are gonna start killing each other and they did and we just didn't have any options it was very difficult to work with the Ag Department it was hard to get answers um, anyway so like that thrust me into the CWD space a lot more than I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. um, and, of course, like, we're off of quarantine now. Um, I, I try to manage risk a lot better with lower numbers of animals. That way, if quarantine does come back, I'm not kind of stuck. Um, but I never, left the, I never left the conversation around the regulations. Like, I'm still there today. Right. You know, I was in D.C. a couple weeks ago for the Nodifa fly-in talking with um, you know, people down there about CWD and regulation and science, and mm -hmm. so like I'll just until I until I feel like we're in a good space um, as an industry, I'm I'll, I'm gonna stay there, and anybody that uh, wants to listen or not, I'm gonna talk to. Yeah, that's <laughs> good. Uh, so, what's your best experience then? Mm. Opposition to that. I think raising this guy was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. I I. I um, I remember there there's he should have never grew this um, and I say that because he was on the farm part of the quarantine and that's one of the only reasons that he got to grow this was because he got to stay and get another year um, so watching him grow was interesting I still remember like pretty much every day at the end of July and August, just sitting on the buggy. I'd feed, he'd kind of come up and, and uh, you know, stare at me at the feeder with those kind of crazy eyes and be like, uh, I'm gonna eat, but I'm not real cool with you being here. And I'd get as close as I could. I'd just hit numbers in that calculator, hit numbers in that calculator. And I keep coming up, 187, 193, 187 to 193. And then 
you know, we knocked him down and he was over 200. I was like, oh, this is cool. You know, I, I remember. I, yeah, <laughs> it was, and he was just a huge, he's a huge animal. Yeah. Um, you know, we thought we were going to pick him up and just throw him around and we had to go get some machinery to move him because mm-hmm. he was too big. And right. So that was cool. Taking him to Nadifa and um, reliving the same joy that I had when I got my hands on those antlers through other people yeah. I thought was cool because he's right. an oddity, right? He's just a, he's, he's not a deer that like, I mean, everybody wants one. No one's trying to raise one. It was just happenstance that we got it. So that was pretty cool. Um, Definitely, yeah. You know, I think, uh, I think it's, I think it's also probably just a, a combination of like everyday events and like the lifestyle that I've chose to live, being a deer farmer, being in the deer industry that uh, provides some sense of, of uh, joy yeah. to it. Yeah. And you, you're, you have two little girls. And I you're do. Bringing them out and helping, they're helping and. I love oh, those videos with them. They're, they're helping. So yeah, they're helping. <laughs> um, they they seem to enjoy it. They're pretty yeah. pumped for fawns. Um, yeah. You know, they... Yeah, I got I to gotta watch. So Gianna, my little one, she loves picking the fawns up. She won't ass, and she's not strong enough to, like, stabilize everything. So, they're like, kicking. she'll, like, grab one, and it'll, like, you know, barrel roll out. And I'm like, dude, don't pick them up. But... Um, they like them. It, I think it's. I think it's good for them. Yeah. Um, the thing that I l- like most is there's tons of life lessons on the mm-hmm. farm, and um, there are. You know, like we can we can learn about life. I can teach them about life, and I can use the animals to do that. So I like that a bunch. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's no people out there, because like I don't really like people all that much. <laughs> I know that's funny. That's what um, you're saying. Yeah. 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 So I I I think it's good for them. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Uh, last question then. What's the best advice anyone has ever given you? Hmm. The best advice? For in context with deer farming. Um, you know, the uh, I've heard some people say, like, don't invest more than you can afford to lose. Um, you know, deer die for no reason, those kinds of things relating to the risk of raising animals. Mm-hmm. And the more, and I've said, I've said, you know, I've said those things like, you know, deer trying to find a corner to die in or something like that. And like that, you know, there's, there's certainly times where having livestock is, is challenging and like it will kick you around. Like you have to be real. At the same time, over the past couple of years, um, the more I continue to focus on health and health-related goals within the farm, the more I shy away from saying those things. Um, so, um, to some capacity, I've heard pieces of that advice from folks, not everyone, but um, I, I I don't I don't really know off the top of my head. That's a great question. Um, I'm sure there's lots of things people have said along the way that have helped, but it's hard to pinpoint one, you know, in particular. Yeah, I I, I 
I would say like, um, and okay, <laughs> this is a, the, I think this is true for all farmers, right? Like people are like, don't get in it for the money, right? Yeah. They're like, get in it because you love the animal. And, and that's what drew me to it at first. Like the money was kind of like an interesting uh, component of it, but like, mm-hmm. like we all started as hunters and like, I, I, I haven't heard anybody really tell me a different story other than like, Starters hunters, we love deer, we wanted more, we got into deer farming. Like that's the general, that's the general story. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think that maybe hearing that, it's not a specific piece of advice, but making sure that you, you have a love for the animal is, is important. Um, I don't think I would have been able to kind of stick through time without having a you know, a, a passion for the, for whitetails. So, um, right. I'm going to go with that. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, I appreciate, uh, I appreciate you doing this for me. Um, Absolutely. I think that it's a, it's always interesting to have, you know, questions that relate to, um, deer and deer farming that I think a lot of people have, you know, they're 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 mm-hmm. interested in these things. So anyway, I appreciate you coming on. Thanks. We'll have to do it again sometime. Yep, we can.